Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Songcraft, please take a moment right now to subscribe to our show via Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also hear streaming episodes on Spotify. To receive a bi-weekly email with new episode announcements, sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com. You can also keep up with us via Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for one word, Songcraft Show. To find out more about how you can help support our mission while getting access to bonus content, exclusive contests, and other extras, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. You're listening to an instrumental version of How About Them Cowgirls, a top five single for George Strait that was co-written by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Ed Hill. The Best Country Song Grammy nominee and BMI Country Songwriter of the Year will join us in a few moments to talk about his career as a consistent Nashville hitmaker in four consecutive decades. Part one. Well, uh, came across some sad news this weekend. Yeah, man. That was uh, particularly relevant to, uh, to Songcraft World. Uh, the passing of David Olney. Yeah, crazy. I saw that news piece last night and, uh, man, died on stage. Wow. At uh, at a songwriter festival, and from all accounts, basically just kind of closed his eyes and yeah. and quietly died. I mean, that the people who were there were saying that he, um, they thought he was just kind of taking a moment, yeah. you know. Um, and uh, wow, I mean, you know, we had had interviewed uh, David. He was, uh, I think, our seventieth episode, mm-hmm. and. Uh, Man, what a really nice guy. Yeah, and, and a guy who was comfortable in his own skin, you know, yeah. comfortable with the kind of writer he was and the kind of career that, that he had carved out for himself, widely respected yeah. by other yeah. writers. And he was 71, which, you know, at a, at one point in my life, I would have thought that sounded, like, really old. Yeah. And uh, now I do not think yeah, that sounds, sounds young, really man. old, no. you know. And, um, you know, we've had... Um, people like Mel Tillis and Curly Putman and, and Red Simpson and, and Irving Burgey and we, we've people that we've interviewed who yeah. have passed away, you know, after our, our conversation with them. Um, and, uh, but yeah, David only seemed to belong to like a younger generation, yeah. you know, than those guys. So, uh, I've, I never met him in person other than our conversation, but I did enjoy our conversation with him so much that it, it kind of surprisingly, uh, hit me like, yeah, Oh man, sad. yeah. Bummed me out. And and then when I read the article, you know, about him dying on stage, I thought, man, there's like kind of like a poetry to this, right? You know, I right. mean, if if you had, if you had to pick, you right. know, how to how to leave this earth, I mean, for a for a writer's writer, yeah, like David Olney, I mean, dying in the middle of a round while yeah. you're playing one of your songs, I mean, just yeah, I absolutely mean, dying with your boots on. It's a pretty it's it's if you got to go, it's a pretty cool way to go. Yeah, and we all got to go. Yeah, <laughs> so. uh Tremendous respect uh, to David Olney, and yeah. uh, we we tip our hats here uh, at Songcraft um, to him and his career and his life. Yeah, I'm going to go back and listen to that interview uh, again, you know, yeah. just because I think it's, uh, I just kind of want to pay tribute to him and think about his career uh, again and, and reflect on it. And, um, you know, like you say, a, a writer's writer and yeah. somebody that, um, boy, what commitment, you know, he was, he wasn't the guy who was you know, the most famous or, you know, the most commercially successful of right. the people that we've talked to, but he's the guy that the Steve Earls and the Towns Van Zants right. of the world, the, the ones who everybody looks up to as the great writers. Well, David Olney was the guy that those guys, right. you know, kind of looked up to. Well, and that's like pretty cool. Somebody say once, you know, the Velvet Underground, uh, you know, why are they such an important band? Only, you know, maybe only a hundred thousand people bought such and such record. Yeah. And the response I heard was, yeah, but all hundred thousand of those people went and started a band. <laughs> right. You right. Know? Exactly. Exactly. And I think so. David only kind of fits into that category as well. Yeah. Um, and, you know, again, we've we've made this point before, but I think this is why it's important that we're that we do this show. This is why we we do this. Yeah. And this is. Um, one of the reasons that we collect and, and archive and preserve these interviews is it's important for people to know Dave Olney's story. And it's not like Dave Olney never gave any interviews besides, sure. you know, Songcraft, but to be able to present long form interviews, um, you know, where people can really go and find out about the lives and careers of these songwriters and recognize the importance and the nobility and um, just kind of the the 
the uniqueness that is choosing songwriting as a profession. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm just think it's it's a good um, you know, not, not to pat ourselves on the back, but it's a good thing to do, whether it's yeah. us doing it or, you know, there's other podcasts that do something similar. So, yeah. and, and I applaud that. I mean, I think it's good and I really appreciate, you know, the listeners who support us through, through Patreon yeah. and, and who, you know, send us emails and tell us how much they like the show and how they've been inspired to write their own songs or improve their own, you know, craft of writing. So, you know, the, this is one of those moments where it just kind of reminds me, uh, why we do this and, yeah. um, you know, if I can be sappy, Paul, I'm glad we have this opportunity to just get together and have totally. these interviews and, and present them to folks. I think it it's uh, it's it's good work we're doing here. Absolutely. And we're going to keep doing it. Part two. So, Scott, we've got this episode here. I find myself asking, who brought us this episode? Hmm. Where did it? It was from. it was someone that uh, has been important in the world of songcraft. What was his yeah. name? This um, episode is brought to you by. Uh, oh, Pearl Jam. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe in my case, uh, as a formative <laughs> band in my life, but you're so close. It's Pearl Snap Studios. Pearl Snap Studios. It was they Justin brought us this episode. Yeah, Justin at Pearl Snap Studios said, "Hey guys, I've got this friend Ed Hill." The dude has written hits in every decade. I didn't even think about that aspect of it. Honestly, I was about to say this episode brought to you by, but Justin literally brought <laughs> us literally, Ed Hill. He literally brought us this episode. Th this, folks, is the spontaneity of an advertisement <laughs> in the middle of a podcast where I didn't realize where this was going, even um, though I started the the conversational thread yes i thought justin we were on the same i thought we not were on the all. same track there and not at all wow I, amazing. I thought i was being clever no justin literally brought and us now i have no I, I didn't realize just how clever i was yeah so you could say that justin has not only sponsored this episode but birthed oh totally the very concept of this episode yeah. so congratulations to you justin <laughs> uh on the birth of a bouncing of podcast episode. baby yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um let's pull it back together here we are justin's like you're not doing me any favors totally we yeah. are highlighting pearl snap uh not just because justin brought us uh an awesome guest on songcraft but because they are your go-to destination to get your songs recorded to, to make them pitchable to make them sound commercial um to just to put that sheen on the song yeah. that you may not be able to do yourself just with your acoustic and your iphone yeah in yeah. fact let me just say that you won't be able to do yourself <laughs> with your acoustic and your iphone yeah so if you've got a song something that you're ready to take to the next level maybe uh you've been writing maybe you've got a few that you think are good but there's one you think's particularly good uh we encourage you to check out pearlsnapstudios.com uh you can send an mp3 to our friend justin and he and his team will put together a quality demo recording that you will be proud to play for anyone Part three. Starting his career as a musician, Ed Hill earned two ACM Award nominations for Piano Player of the Year and received a Grammy Award as a member of Mickey Gillies Urban Cowboy Band. He went on to become one of Nashville's top-tier songwriters, scoring 400 cuts and more than 40 singles. His very first cut, To Love Comes Again, became a top-five hit for Reba McIntyre, who later hit number one with his song, The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. Other top five singles from Hill's catalog include Runnin' Behind and ACM Vocal Event of the Year, Find Out Who Your Friends Are for Tracy Lawrence, Be My Baby Tonight for John Michael Montgomery, It Matters to Me for Faith Hill, Whatever You Say for Martina McBride, Songs About Me for Trace Adkins, How About Them Cowgirls for George Strait, Drinkin' Class by Lee Bryce, and Most People Are Good, a single for Luke Bryan that was named Song of the Year by the Music Row Awards in 2018. Additional Ed Hill catalog highlights include the Trisha Yearwood classic Georgia Rain and Trace Adkins' Just Fishin', which earned Ed a Grammy nomination for Best Country Song. Five of Ed's titles have earned the Songs I Wish I Had Written recognition from the Nashville Songwriters Association International. In 2006, Ed was named BMI Country Songwriter of the Year. He recently released a memoir called It Matters to Me, one of country music's most beloved songwriters. Ed, welcome to Songcraft. Well, thank you so much. Oh, absolutely. Um, now, you were born in Hanford, California, which is part of the, the great Central Valley, which was once, you know, a thriving region of, of country music. And, and that area gave, you know, the world Buck Owens and, and Merle Haggard. Um, tell us a little bit about, you know, growing up there and, and, and what kind of influences you were absorbing as a kid. Well, I grew up on a, a little cotton farm. 
out in, Cal- in uh, Hanford, California, in the San Joaquin Valley. And uh, when I was a kid in grammar school, what we listened to was whatever was on the radio, which was back then was a pretty broad thing. I mean, yeah. on the radio back then, it was, you know, it was bubblegum stuff. But I mean, it was, you know, everything from, you know, Dusty Springfield to, uh, you know, uh, you know, there was R&B on there and uh, a little bit of country. Uh, but it, I really didn't uh, get hip to, to too much country. I never listened to, I mean, it, no, we weren't listening to Hank Williams around my house, yeah. but but then Johnny Cash kind of started coming on the the regular radio, um, and some of those guys like him had a little bit more of an influence on me because Johnny Cash, for some reason, kind of crossed over a lot of boundaries yeah. where he wasn't just a country star, you know. And uh, so anyway, and then uh, when I started high school in the fall of '63. That's right when the whole British invasion broke out with the Beatles, the Stones, and yeah. all that stuff started coming around. And then uh, I, uh, after eighth grade, my, I, my mom, I, I uh, asked her if she'd buy me an electric guitar. And uh, I kind of checked them out. And I went to Fresno. She took me to Fresno to a pawn shop and got a cheap Japanese guitar mm-hmm. without a case, electric guitar, with solid body. It was called a melody, and it probably just was awful. But I had a cardboard box, and I kept it under my bed, and I'd get it out, and I'd mess with it all the time. That's and awesome. I, before I even had an amp. <laughs> and um, then eventually, uh, I started. Uh, I got a Sears and Roebuck amp, and uh, uh, I got into a band uh, when I was a freshman in high school, and it was an all Mexican band. Um, so American kid I, inspired by British invasion buys Japanese guitar joins Mexican band. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. And nobody in my town like I was start dabbling in writing songs back then. I don't know why. I just was. Uh, I thought it was kind of cool, and uh, I'm sure they're totally awful. But <laughs> I just dabbled in it a little bit, and then. Even when I got out of high school, I started playing, uh, you know, I'd get in another band. And then for some reason, somebody would have to leave one sooner or later. Or somebody's mother would make one of the guys quit. <laughs> and uh, I, I'd gone to playing keyboards. And I was a bass player uh, before that. And then I went to playing keyboards because our keyboard player in one of the bands, his mother actually made him quit. And we had a Farfisa organ. And then... So I just kind of moved over there. And, but, you know, the bands, you know, when you run out of jobs, you don't really have a lot of jobs and after game dance and things like that. You yeah. know? And so, But then something happened to me. I got a call from a guy I used to, named Randy Ager, who I used to play in a band with in high school. He was a guitar player. His aunt and uncle lived in Bakersfield, and they had a job coming up at a place called the Blackboard. And the Blackboard is a famous country club in Bakersfield. It used to be on the circuit. It used to be on the West Coast circuit uh, for Buck Owens and Merle and Buddy Mize and Cousin Herb and all those guys that played uh, that California sound in Bakersfield. Uh, the Blackboard was on that circuit. It was a big dance floor, and uh, they were kind of going from kind of in the middle of between being country and rock, where it used to be all country. Right. And so that's kind of why they wanted me in the band, because I knew a little bit of rock. So I had to learn country. Hmm. But then when I got there and started woodshedding and learning it, I liked it. And uh, it had a form to it more. I mean, it had verses and choruses and, uh, you know, things that made sense. And a lot of times in rock music was... You know, well, we're going to go to the acid part now. You know, like, well, you know, it's like, you know, they, they weren't strung together quite the same. Right. Um, and anyway, I hung in there um, over that, and I, and I you know, woodshed it a lot, and, and I moved there. I lived there for seven years. Well, and, and those experiences must have obviously, you know, helped you a lot, not only in terms of, of the skills you'd, you'd be putting toward your songwriting one day, but uh, you got a gig at a very famous club in North Hollywood called the Palomino Club. Um, I'd, I'd love to know about some of the people you played with there and some of the things you picked up that, that kind of, you know, made their way into your songwriting brain, your future songwriting brain. Well, you know, I played with, uh, for a few weeks, with Merle Haggard when uh, uh, Mark Geary, his piano player, went on his own for a while, and... Uh, and I got that job 
for, I don't know, six weeks or something, because Wayne Durham, who was Merle Haggard's bass player at the Strangers at the time, he was also the bass player in this band I was in, in Bakersfield, before that. Anyway, so he played with Merle for a while, and he played with him, I think, for about two years, and then Wayne got a job at the Palomino in Hollywood, which was um, Bakersfield to, to North Hollywood is a, probably a two-hour drive. Right. And then Wayne told me one day, he says, well, we're, our piano player left, and so you want to you want to go down there and try out for the piano player at the Palomino? And I go, well, sure. And I went down there on a Monday, and I got the job, and uh, then, uh, you know, then I moved down there, and we were playing six nights a week. And uh, there was there's not that many country gigs in L.A. You think there would be. Right. It's like Nashville. There's not that many. But uh, at the time, Tommy Thomas, who owned the Palomino, he loved country music. And there was big stars in there all the time. And we were, uh, what we would do, like at 8.30, we'd play the opening set. Then the, the stars would come on. Then they would clear the house out, bring in a whole new crowd. And then the 11 o'clock show would come on, and, and we would play. We would open up and play, I don't know, 45 minutes or an hour. So it was a great gig for us. We just had to play two sets instead of you know instead of five right and then a lot of times the stars would come in and they wouldn't have a band i mean marty robbins would come in and he would have just those two guys that sang with him so we'd back him so huh. so awesome. they got free backing a lot and what was great about it is la was such a uh, a mecca for nightlife that we would have stars in there movie stars our, our stunt people just come in there all the time just to have a drink. You know, Whoa. Clint Eastwood would come in, or, you know, Ruth Buzzy, or, or Bette Midler. I mean, you know, they would just come in and sit down and have a drink. Man, that's cool. Um, well, you know, maybe the only honky-tonk that was more famous than the Palomino was Gillies in Pasadena, Texas. And you ultimately wound up in that band with Mickey Gilly, um, which landed you on the Urban Cowboy soundtrack, uh, earned you a Grammy Award for Best Country Instrumental for Orange Blossom Special. Um, talk about how you ended up in Texas and how that led into your career as a songwriter. The way I left the Palomino was a Gilly, you know, they would play there once in a while. They'd come in and play there. And so... Well, when they left one time, Johnny Lee was playing with him. He actually started, first time I saw him, Johnny Lee was playing drums with Gilly. And then the second time he talked him into letting him sing. But, but Johnny said, hey, man, our, uh, again, our piano player is leaving. You want, you want the gig as piano player. So I, I went ahead and went with him. Right. And uh, then we did the whole Urban Cowboy thing for two or three years, you know, and I went did all that. And I was, I was writing uh, all the time, and I, nobody told me to do it or, or not to do it. It's just, I just, I guess I just enjoyed it, and I never really know why uh, I did it. I knew that I was going, I was trying to get, you know, Gilly to do one of my songs, and he never did, but the Urban Cowboy Band would open up shows, like a lot of times we'd have like 15 or 20 minutes before Johnny Lee or Mickey would come out, so being how the piano was right in front, I was right in front, so I'd open up the show and sing one of my songs, the band would play it, or I might sing a song, you know, uh, a cover tune or something like that. But but anyway, so I was writing during that whole time and everything, but um, then it kind of waned down, and I uh, eventually uh, left, and, and I wandered my way out to... Uh, Nashville, because we had played there a few times when I was with Gilly, doing those shows, those uh, uh, Nashville Now and the whatever, probably the Ralph Emery, whatever the shows were yeah. then, I can't remember. You know, we did Austin City Limits in Texas, you know, but it's just a bunch of stuff. I mean, everything we did. And so I liked Nashville. And uh, and then I, I wanted, for some reason, I, would, I had gotten some uh, individual, some some indie cuts on my own before I got there. Just you know, uh, other and I had and I had made a, a couple of, of singles myself as an artist. Uh, I was younger then, and uh, on songs I'd written and stuff. So anyway, I went there and I drove my truck there, and I didn't know anybody. And I drove my dad's truck, actually borrowed his old truck, and I put a camper shell on it, and I had a sleeping bag in back. And for two weeks, I slept in my truck, and. Uh, just looking for, you know, what was going on. How, yeah. how does this, you know, how does this monkey climb a tree around here? What do you do? <laughs> I mean, I don't know anything, you know. And so eventually I started uh, 
with this guy uh, painting apartments. And so I would paint apartments, and that was my gig. And so then I would write songs at night. And so I was uh, making uh, my living painting apartments uh, and then playing music with Johnny Lee on the weekends and then writing songs at night. And then I I would go down and I would ask, you know, well, what do you what do you people record your songs? What do you, what do you demo songs? You know, I mean, I have some songs here. I wrote them by myself because I didn't know anybody anyway. And so I found this place called a song seller. I do one song a month that I wrote by myself. And at the end, at the end of a year, I had 12 songs and I took eight of them and I asked the singer, I used one time, I used to sing a bunch of them myself, but I had Karen Staley sing a couple of them. I said, who can I show these songs to? She goes, you can show them to my publisher. She'd love to see them. And it was a lady by the name of, uh, Karen Conrad, who was an independent publisher. And so I showed them to her. I held my breath. I went in there, and I had real thin skin. I don't have thin skin anymore because I've been beat down so many times. But <laughs> but when you first get there and you show your songs to people, you know, you're like, mm, sure. i got to go, you know. <laughs> and and she called me about, as soon as she got to listen to the eight songs, and she wanted four of them. And uh, wanted enough, you know, we could write a contract on those four songs. And so I went back down there, and, that, and I started working with her. And I'm thinking that this is probably around 1989 when Reba McIntyre landed a top five country song with "To Love Comes Again." Uh, you wrote that with Bob Regan. Um, did that come about as a result of meeting Karen Conrad? Uh, it was a 20th song that I had turned in. I had written with Bob, who Bob who started writing for her, and Bob came from California. Uh, we wrote. To Love Comes Again, and then uh, Karen, I think, knew Reba a little bit. Reba was on the road. Reba was popular. You know, she was she was hot then, you know, as far as her career right. was on the rise, and uh, so uh, she got it to Reba, and then uh, Reba cut it and made it a single, and uh, that was my, my first cut was a single. In in the wake of of that success with Reba, uh, Tracy Lawrence had a top five Billboard hit with "Running Behind," um, and it wasn't long after that that you earned your first Billboard number one single with "Be My Baby Tonight," which was a hit for John Michael Montgomery. Oh man, that was that was wonderful, man. And and uh, every year there for a while, I would venture out and maybe write with somebody I didn't write with. And a lot of times it didn't work out. Most of the time it didn't. And once in a while it did. And I uh, I got together with Rich Fagan. Uh, I knew Rich. I never wrote with him. I mean, I I knew him. I liked him. He was a fun guy. Rich is you know was, he's real good at phrasing. Rich is no longer with us, but he was good at phrasing music he had a real knack for that and we just made a three chord song and uh, that's what we made and I came up with the lyric for the rest of the chorus which wasn't near as good as his but that's what pulled everybody in was that wordplay and uh, the simplicity of the song there's no there's no bridge and um, we turned it in we demoed it uh, at County Q and had a uh, Ron Wallace thing this demo so that took you know probably three or four months along and then uh, is in our, my catalog and uh, Scott Hendricks who was uh, producing uh, John Michael Montgomery this new kid on Atlantic uh, he'd done one album uh, the uh, Life's a Dance album and he was looking for a second album and uh, Scott had come into our office several times and he was friends with Ron Stevie and Karen who worked at our office, and he had never taken a song, and he 
they played him this song and he took it. He didn't put it on hold because, you know, that's just a word anyway, but he took a copy of it and then uh, he cut it on John Michael Montgomery. And, uh, and that happened to be the second single off of that album. The first single was I Swear, which was huge. That was a and so, uh, and that, you know, crossed over to the, I don't know whatever the boy band that did I swear, but right. but Baby I Baby Tonight was a multi was you know a couple of weeks at number one, and to this day they play that song. That song's been played millions of times. Mm-hmm. In fact, that song's been played more than anything that I've ever had because it's it's just there's no burn factor to it. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, after a song like that, you're like, you know, I just I I love to have songs that that they will play in twenty years or yeah. ten years or whatever and a lot of the stuff now won't there won't be on the icon station right. you know but those things back then they're going to be played and they're going to you know i mean this is a george Strait song or, or whatever i mean right. they're just gonna they're always going to be a part of of americana and it was just real real simple two verses with yeah. chorus well, you you had another number one the following year with Reba McIntyre's recording of The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. That was a song. It was the title of a Carson McCullers novel. And of course, you know, books and, and TV shows and movies and overheard conversations, all that stuff is great fodder for songs. And I'm curious, is there a particular source for you that you've found to be particularly rich when it comes to just sparking ideas for songs in general? Um, well, you know, I, I just, always kind of keep my antennas out. I don't know how else to put it. I, uh, you know, I, I just try to, to make myself aware of things that could be titles. And uh, right. that particular day, I was writing with Kim Williams and Mark Sanders, both incredible writers. They're both Hall of Fame writers. And Kim brought that title up, not me. But Kim had just come from the bookstore, and, and he was looking through the books. And he was looking for a title. And uh, sometimes you just, you know, you just do that. And, uh, um, but the inspiration for a title, I mean, I'm doing it all, I, I still do it. And uh, it's just, it's a good habit to get into. Yeah. And when I go to write with somebody, I try to bring something to the table and then I may not. And it's okay. You know, it just needs to be, you just need to have fun and enjoy yourself and open up your creative self. Yeah. Like open up the page that's creative and stay on it. Mm. Like I don't, you know, there's, there's certain things when you're writing with people that you just don't want to, you know, you don't want to, you, you want their creative page to be open too. Hmm. And uh, whatever that takes is, is what you do. And you, you got to kind of figure out the person a little bit, you huh. know, and some, some people want to go to lunch. Some people don't. <laughs> some people want to eat a bag lunch. So, I'm, I, I know before I get there what, what we're going to do. And yeah. I know that if we start talking about something that is off the song, it tr- triggers me into getting back on the song, but yet I don't want to burn nobody out. Huh. I just don't want to sit there and talk about politics all day. Right. Because right. <laughs> musicians, you're not going to change no, no songwriter's mind. You know, so that's not what I'm there for. Well, you co-wrote the title track for Faith Hill's second album, It Matters to Me, which became yet another number one single for you in 1995. When we don't talk, when we don't touch, when it doesn't feel like we're even in love, it matters to me. When I don't know what to say, don't know what to do, don't know if it really Tell us about that song. Well, that's with Mark Sanders, and uh, Mark's one of those guys that I 
I'd ridden with him many times before, and that was back in the uh, the yellow legal pad day. And I had written down 15 or 20 things, and I don't know if any of them were titles or what. I was just jotted down things to look like I was doing something, <laughs> and I brought them in. And I sat down with Mark, and he didn't want to write that day. I had to talk him into writing because he had gotten an argument with his wife, Cindy, hmm. and uh, he didn't want to show up that day. I talked him into it on the phone, showed up, and then, you know, we're talking about that. And so I started going through this. And, and about about two-thirds of the way down on these 20 things I had written down, I had written, it matters to me. And he's like, yeah, okay, go on, go on. And we got to the got to the end, got to all of them, about 20 of them. And Mark goes, hey, go back to that, it matters to me. Okay? And uh, then we started writing a song about him and his wife uh, not talking that morning and getting in an argument. And that's how it, baby, tell me words you ever learned to fight without saying a word. Wow. That's the beginning of the song. <laughs> and it, was a, it was an argument he got with wow. his wife. And uh, Faith. Uh, was just doing about to do her second album so she was coming on strong and again that was where Scott Hendricks who at the time was producing John Michael Montgomery was producing Faith and he took a copy of that song and Faith didn't want to cut it uh, and they uh, Karen Staley apparently kind of talked her into doing it and nice. uh, and it changed her and it became the name of the album and it actually uh, was a career song for Faith, you know. Right. Uh, it changed her, it, it catapulted her into Reba, in the Reba stratosphere right. at the time. Right, right, And sure. that's another song they still play. Yeah. And, I've and you know, those songs like that and Be My Baby Tonight, those are standards now, mm -hmm. which, you know, by the grace of God, people like them, they kept playing them, and that's like, if I play those songs somewhere, a songwriter thing, man, I get people, you know, make you feel really good about it. Yeah. Uh, As we move into the latter part of the 1990s, uh, we see charting singles like C-O-U-N-T-R-Y by Joe Diffie, um, Just Another Heartache by Shelley Wright, uh, Buckaroo by Leanne Womack. Um, in that same era, you had at least three singles by Clay Walker with uh, One, Two, I Love You, Ordinary People, and She's Always Right. And just seeing the frequency of Clay Walker as the artist in that era made me wonder, do you typically write songs with a particular performer in mind, or do you usually just write the song and leave it up to your publisher to figure out where to pitch it? Both. It, it just all depends uh, on, the, on the idea and what's going on in that room that day. Uh, you know, I am trying to feed my family and put gas in my car, right. which is completely different than if I was Bruce Springsteen going, you know what, this really, I really like this. You know, <laughs> I don't have that, I don't have that luxury. Uh, I really don't. But when I'm sitting there writing some, when you're writing some all the time and you're starting from square one all the time, you know, and you come up with an idea, which is probably a good idea to come up with an idea first. Right. Uh, it, the thing is, then you start thinking, you know, like between the guardrails of, can I get this on radio? And who may do it? Like when Casey Beathard and I wrote, uh, how about them cowgirls, which is a little later, nobody's going to record that song but George Strait, yeah. unless maybe Ronnie Dunn at the time, because it's just not lyrically and musically something they're going to do. And so we took that chance. Now, the publisher wants you to do a song that, that 20 people can record, but the artist doesn't want to do a song that 20 people can record because they want right. to be a unique individual. So you have that always going on in your head, and then you're trying to be creative, and then you're trying to wipe that out of your head at the same time. So, you know, you're making all the decisions, and then you have to go produce a demo that's completely done so they can hear it, because they can't hear it any other way. So there's a lot on a songwriter uh, that, that people don't realize. You know, looking at the turn of the millennium uh, from the 90s into the 2000s, it, you, your last big hit of the 90s was in 99, when Martina McBride hit number two on the country chart with Whatever You Say. That also became your first top 40 pop hit. Um, then it was Martina who gave you your first big hit of the new millennium when There You Are became a top 10 hit in 2000. There you are Every time I take a breath And when I forget to breathe You're watching over me There you 
after that, I gotta confess, I was a little surprised to see that you had a top 20 adult contemporary hit with Kenny G and Shantae Moore, their recording of One More Time in 2002. Just one more time, one more moment to take you in my arms. One more chance, one more kiss before I wake to find you disparate styles here i mean are these are all just different parts of the ed hill writer personality well i grew up on radio of every type of music there was as far as you know rock pop country you know look at my background so that helped me out be a chameleon to actually make a living doing this because when it gets hard for back then to get uh, a male cut i would write female songs because they could actually would actually say more Hmm. You know, and then I had uh, uh, How Far on Martina, uh, Whatever You Say, and then, and um, I think Martina did There You Are because the melody was so daggum good, and and I don't take all the credit for that. I wrote that song with Mark Sanders and Bob DiPiro, and uh, that song started out as a whole other song about six months earlier with Mark Sanders that we had to be writing with Bob one day, and it just kind of morphed into There You Are, and I even then, you know, you're questioning, uh, like, well, no, these are pretty silly lyrics, you know, you're the moon, you know, I'm the sun, I mean, you know, like, come on. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, then it just, then she loved it. And I never even met these people. I've never met Martina. I've never huh. met Faith. I don't even know these people. They've never even, you know, dropped a line to me <laughs> or anything. And I'm sure they're real nice people. I don't know. But it's just a miracle that that stuff happens. Yeah. The great thing is about it, they can't nobody can take it away from me. Yeah, those are my songs and and it, it's part of it's part of history and I'm real proud of it. Tell us a little bit about um Trace Atkins songs about me. Songs about me, that's with uh, Shay Smith. We knew each other for quite a few years, but I don't know, we just thought we'd give it a shot one time and we got together and, and we liked it. And I, and I don't know what she does and, and I don't know what I do, but whatever it is together we we seemed to work it out, and that day we wrote that song, and we didn't have that big jump in there with the verse to the chorus, like where the singer has to sing higher, you know, songs about me. We had it, you know, down, and we went and demoed it, um, and we got Jamie Johnson at the time. I knew Jamie before he was before he even got signed to a, a record deal, and Jamie would sing some demos for us. We loved singing, and, and we got to be good friends. And, so we got in the studio with Jamie, and you know, we thought, well, if Trace doesn't do this, we're screwed because nobody's going to sing this because they don't sing low like that. Jamie right. sings like Trace, you know. So we got in there, and he's like, you know, met a guy on a red eye, you know, doing all that. And then he goes, man, we need to make that thing go jump up an octave there. Songs about me. I go, oh, man, but who's, nobody's going to sing it. He goes, yeah, but he goes, Trace can sing it. And, that was one of those that if he don't cut it, nobody's going to cut it. Huh. <laughs> right. And uh, and so we we did it and demoed it and uh, and eventually uh, it got in that camp. And I think at the time Traces on Capital, which was Mike Duncan, uh, was running that uh, label. And uh, when they decided to do it, that was another one, Scott Hendricks. I've had luck with Scott. I've had I've had some big songs with Scott Hendricks. He produced Trace then. Scott called me up and said, man, you need to come over to the office and hear this. And uh, I went over to his office, and on his little tape machine, I guess Mike, the, the record label guy, he, he wasn't on board with the song at first. And then he's, and then I heard him on the tape machine, Scott played it for me, and I can't tell you exactly what he said because it won't go on, but he said, man, stick a sharp stick up my blank blank. This song's a hit. <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> and it was they made it a single 
Well, in 2006, Tracy Lawrence hit number one with Find Out Who Your Friends Are, which was released with guest vocals from Tim McGraw and Kenny Chesney and ended up winning an ACM Award for Vocal Event of the Year. You'll find out who your friends are. Somebody's gonna drop everything. Run out and crank up their car. Hit the gas, get that fast, never stop to think what's that ever made. Or it's way too far They just show on up With a big old heart You find out who your friends are So what's more gratifying? Hearing the biggest country stars on the planet sing your songs or getting industry recognition which is what happened when you earned several of the Songs I Wish I Had Written awards from NSAI? Well, it's two different parts of your brain. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that was a thrill, uh, getting those three. Those three guys were buddies. When Tracy uh, was a big star, he was a big star before Kenny and, and Tim were. And I think, basically, he asked them, once he once they were big stars, and he, he hadn't had a hit in 10 years, Tracy had, or something like that, and he asked those guys to sing on it. And they just did it as a favor because they were friends because Tracy helped them out when they were starting out. And I don't think they thought anything more than that. But uh, when Tracy put that song out, uh, he put it out on his own label, which is him and his brother. He didn't even have a label. And I thought, oh, well, this ain't going to work. And, and I watched it down in the 40s on the, on the charts, and it would just lose its bullet. And it lost its bullet maybe four times. And I just stopped looking. And then he put the version out. There's two versions on the record. They put the album out, and they had the version with Tim McKinney on it. And then that's when it that's when it picked up and just took off because those two guys, you know, were huge. And that was a thrill. And that was about 47 weeks for that thing to get to number one. And, and, uh, but that was sweet. And that's another one that they play all the time. And it's just, it's not a thing is nobody ever wanted that song. I mean, Tracy Lawrence wanted that song. That song had been sitting in our catalog for a couple of years and it's not about a girl. It's not a chick song, you know, I mean, it's like, and he got it. And he and actually the song was a tempo. It's kind of a mid tempo the way Tracy did it, but we actually even had it slower than that. And uh, we didn't get one one bite on it from anybody. And but that was a that was a total miracle, and it was a total thrill that that it happened. You know, and I know you know when the thing went number one, Tracy cried. I mean, because oh. it just you know it was great. Now the songs by your peers. I mean. That's that's great too. I mean, uh, um, I don't know, you know, how to compare those. You know, I mean, it's just nice that those people do that, and they don't have to because they all want to vote for their own song. Yeah, I mean, you've had Grammy nominations too. I mean, just fishing for Trace Atkins. Yeah, yeah, I lost out to Taylor Swift. That was when <laughs> Taylor was was smoking up the country charts. You know, when she had about those first four or five songs. I mean, you couldn't hold it back with a team of horses. You know, yeah. I mean, that was just. And uh, I remember going to the Grammys. It was 2012, and of course I was just thrilled to go. And you know, and and we'd go there, and I'm sitting there, and I don't, and I I'm looking on on my piece of paper, or whatever, and it's got you know your category and when it's coming up and who all's in it, you know, and and uh, so I see it's coming up, and I'm sitting there with my wife, and I'm. I think one of them was uh, with Tracy Bird was in there with the Kenny Chesney song. Yeah, you look at them all going, well, I don't know if I got a chance or what, you know. And and, uh, and then uh, so it gets right to our category, and I and I see on look on the on here, I see a Taylor Swift song. Okay, Taylor, I don't see her anywhere. Okay, maybe maybe, but I did notice that a band was setting up over here, and it's like right before they announced our category, Taylor pops her head out, and I see her, and I was like, oh. Well, there it is. <laughs> and she puts her hand over her mouth, and she can't believe she won. And then her band's already set up on stage to play the song. That's awesome. I'm like, dang. So, what are you going to do? She's perfected you know? that look. Yeah, she's perfected that pretty darn well. But uh, she was real hot. I mean, she was, you know, I mean, she couldn't she couldn't make a mistake. But, but my song, uh, that song, uh, Just Fishing, Trace, that song was the second most played song. I think BMI, uh, uh, Jody Williams told me it was the second most played song that year. She thinks we're just fishing on the river 
something too ambitious She ain't even thinking about What's really going on right now But I guarantee this memory's a big one And she thinks we're just fishing And that song got to six on the charts And the reason it didn't go higher is because and no offense to anybody, but that song was smoking up the charts, and that song was on, on Universal South, which is co-owned by Toby Keith and at the time, and Mark Wright was running the label. And I, and I know Mark, and I saw him at the Grammys, and my song, you know, I, it was right there or about that time or whatever. But he told me, he says, well, here's the deal on that song. Uh, Toby's song's coming out, or came out or whatever, the same time yours did or whatever. And we have to promote Toby's song, and we're going to make Toby's song number one, and, you, and our, your promotion's going to go along with it. And as soon as Toby's song gets number one, we're dropping the promotion that day on both songs. So wherever yours happens to be, Jeez. when his is number one, and mine uh, hung out at 11 for a little bit, they, Toby passed me up, and I got up to six, and Toby got to one, and as soon as he got to one, they dropped promotion on both songs. They both wow. came off the charts. So that's those, behind the those scenes. Are the stories you don't hear, yeah. <laughs> Nashville you politics. Yeah. 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 I mean, but, you know, it's it's a lot of that going on. I mean, right. I touch upon that a little bit in my book. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you don't see a lot of guys having, uh, you know, hit, singles in 1989 that are still having you know hit singles with lee bryson and luke bryan today um what do you attribute um that longevity to stubbornness <laughs> uh, now you know uh i don't know exactly it's just that i didn't want to be a failure to my to my parents man i was like if i'm gonna do this i kind of hard-headed you know but i feel really mm -hmm. lucky to, to be able to do it, and I know you got to do a lot to get a little, but a little can get you a lot. And it's like, like with Luke Bryan, you know, most people are good. I never thought Luke Bryan would cut that song, and that song was just written because I was sitting around with Josh Kerr and David Frazier, and we decided to write something that we actually believed in and liked. And uh, the only reason I think it got cut is because Jeff Stevens, is Luke Bryan's producer, was a friend of ours because I we used to ride with him, uh, and he thought, man, this is a great thing for Luke and a great time in his career, and uh, and Luke liked it, and uh, it's very rare because Luke, Luke's usually a writer on his stuff, but I mean, yeah. Luke pictures everything and that he writes is like I'm here to give the fans fun, F-U-N, mm -hmm. fun, yeah, and. I think he made the mistake of playing our song for his mother, and she loved it so much because it said most mamas ought to qualify for sainthood. I mean, the hell, a mama doesn't get that. And uh, then, you know, put it in his key, and, and then it's up to the record label. And even Jeff was like, you know, I, you know, I can drive the boat in, but, I, but it's up to them, you know. And he's had more serious songs once in a while, but to make it a single... And it just flew up the charts. In fact, they had to hold it back. And uh, it was three weeks at number one, and it would have been five. Uh, but they had another artist over at Universal, a young, I can't remember which one, that they needed to get in to that number one slot uh, after three weeks. He was at three, I think, maybe four to George Lyon on, on the other label was at two. And then, or no, he was at two and four. George Lyon was at three. And if they didn't get him in the number one the next week, he was going to get jumped by the Florida Georgia line and he wouldn't get in at all. So they pulled my song out. That's, that's how it works. Wow. And, uh, well, you mentioned your book a few minutes ago and I understand you have recently released uh, a memoir. Tell us a little bit about that and, and where people can get that. Well, the book is called it matters to me. And, uh, yeah, yeah that was one of my songs, but, uh, it also does matter to me. And it, it's a lot about what we've been talking about during this whole show. And uh, I have about um, 25 of singles. I wrote I wrote in there about the story behind 25. I, I'm about 25 of them. Yeah. And uh, how they came to be. And I've touched on a little bit of it here with, with you guys. And then I, I have stuff about my youth, about Bakersfield, uh, 
Bakersfield Sound with Merle Haggard and all that kind of stuff. My personal experience is there, and then the Palomino, I've kind of I've got a lot on that, and then going to going to Nashville, and uh, so it's it, it's sort of a memoir or whatever. But I just didn't want, and I have stuff in there about my my folks a little bit early in the book, but. There's a lot of things I just didn't want to get lost, and I want, hmm. things I want my children to know, and things that people wouldn't know if I didn't tell them. And yeah. so, I have happy and sad. I mean, I have good, and bad. I didn't, I didn't skate around stuff. Uh, yeah. There's things I didn't put in there, of course, and there's things that I had to alter a little bit. I mean, I, you know, I couldn't mention certain names because I, <laughs> you know, I don't want to get in a lawsuit or anything. But, <laughs> right. but yeah, people want to hear the real deal. Yeah. And uh, people can get it on the, if they just go to edhillmusic.com or www.edhillmusic.com. You can see where you can buy it. Um, where, like, if you want an autographed copy, you can just you can just buy it that way, and yeah. I can just send you an autographed copy. You can also get it through Amazon. Very uh, cool. Very cool. Well, I know our listeners will be interested in in getting that. Ed, we want to uh, thank you for taking some time today to to chat with well, us. Well, thank you, fun. man. This, this, Scott and Paul, you guys are awesome. Oh, yeah. I appreciate you. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please take a moment now to subscribe to Songcraft in your podcast app of choice and sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com. As a reminder, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for Songcraft Show, all one word. And don't forget to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow to find out how you can help support us. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash songcraftshow. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support.